So as we have seen over these past few weeks, this book of Amos has much uh, to teach us and lots of tough judgment. But here in this final chapter, uh, particularly in those verses from 11 to 15, it ends with a real note of hope. Hope that is rooted in the restoration and renewal that God will bring about. And it is ultimately God who will put the world to rights. So as we look back over these uh, past eight chapters of Amos and we recall all the judgments and the doom and the gloom, the people of Israel might well have asked, do we have any future Bearing in mind that even at this point, as we come to chapter 9, uh, we read last week that God had stopped talking to his nation. And, uh, and so, quite rightly, the people of Israel may well have asked, do we have a future? And Amos' and Amos's response would have been, as a continuation of the way things are now, as a remnant sifted, no. As a continuation of the way things are now, no. But as a remnant sifted by the judgment of God and purified into a new people, yes, you have a future. And that was the word of hope, which concludes this prophecy. Now, this word of hope may seem contradictory in light of Amos's prophecies of destruction that we've read in the previous eight chapters. But let's understand that hope in the midst of despair was the common prophetic stance because the prophets of old spoke not from the perspective of man's problems but from the perspective of God's eternal plan. Man's, self, man's sinfulness cannot thwart God's plan for man's redemption and in the darkest of times the light of God's grace breaks through to give us hope for the future. We've had testimony today about how God's light has broken through into situations of darkness. And so as Amos speaks this positive note of hope, he firmly roots it in this in, in God. Israel could have hope for their future, not because of who they were, but because of who God is. Hope that was rooted in the sovereignty and the providence of God. And in those opening five, five verses of chapter 9, Amos refers to God as the Lord of hosts. He mentions his sovereignty. He describes God's control over all creation. And as we read those opening five verses from Amos 9, it brings to mind the declaration of the psalmist, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And earlier in his prophecy, Amos stresses God's ability to seek out those who might try to escape his judgment. We read about that, that there was nowhere that anyone could go to escape, judge God, uh, um, to escape God's judgment. Now Amos confirms God's ability to seek out those whom he wants to preserve. 
We need to understand that at this time, Israel's faith had degenerated until God was little more than just a cult deity. Their vision of God was too small, too limited, too constricted. And Amos uses a familiar hymn in, in these opening verses of chapter 9. A familiar hymn of praise that will be known to the people of God to soar in exaltation, extolling, extolling God's power over nature and the events of history. He is the commander of the armies of angels who carry out his plans. God controls his creation because he is the builder and founder of both heaven and earth. Creation is said to be like a house or a palace in which a kind of upper room is used for heaven and a storeroom is used for the earth. And by God's power, water is drawn from the sea and is poured out on the earth in rain. Who is this mighty God? And that hymn ends with the refrain in verse 6, the Lord is his name. Now that hymn um, in Amos may not impress our sophisticated ears today. But that hymn of praise should motivate us to praise the creator and sustainer of the earth and our universe. The most wondrous of all, of course, is that he created us to know and to love him. And the greatest miracle of all, of, of all is our transformation through Jesus, his cross, his resurrection and his indwelling presence. That should lead us to overwhelming praise. But Amos repeats this familiar hymn in order to prepare his listeners for the truth that follows in verse 7. Here Amos highlights God's providence by describing his guiding hand, not just in the history of Israel but in the history of other nations as well. God who is Lord of all creation Lord of Israel is also the Lord of all nations. And Israel, having denied both its privilege and responsibilities, will be judged more severely than other nations. And in, and in effect, Amos says that him you love shows how God controls the universe and meets out his judgment among the nations. But you have wrongly assumed that this judgment would always benefit you and harm others. But you need to realise that you also deserve the wrath of which the hymn speaks. So for the people of God, it must have been shocking to hear that God had been involved in the history of two other nations. They, they, they had always seen as their enemies, the Philistines, the Syrians. How could God be involved in the life of those nations? They were enemies of God's people. But perhaps they could not be as sure, so sure of God's protection. The questions were carefully placed below to the people's pride. Were they not the darlings of the Almighty God? But the sovereign God who created the world and by whose providence all nations are guided is the foundation for and the source of the prophet's message of hope. A story is told of a family, a mother, a father, a young son and a daughter who visited the Carlsbad 
uh, caverns in New Mexico while on holiday. While exploring the cavern on their guided tour, the guide turned out the lights to show how dark it was beneath the surface of the earth. And out of the darkness came two sounds, the gasp of one of the little girls who was caught by surprise at the sudden darkness, and then the comforting words of her older brother, don't worry sister, there's someone here who knows how to turn on the lights. That was Amos's word to the people in his day, in the shadow of this message of judgment. Dark days are ahead, the prophet declared, but then he added this word, but don't worry, there is someone here who knows how to turn on the lights. How could Israel have, in the face of the prophet's message of judgment, how could they have hope? The prophet explains in verses eight, I will destroy you from the face of the earth. But then it is countered with this message of hope. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Already Amos has predicted Israel will be taken into exile. Now he reveals that the exile will not result in the destruction of Israel, but in the disciplining of Israel. The exile will be a time of sifting out, of which will come a purified Israel. In ancient days, there was a number of ways of sifting grain in ancient times. One type allowed the chaff to pass through the sieve, retaining the grain, while while the other way uh, allowed the grain to fall, keeping pebbles in this sieve. But regardless of whichever method, the result was the same. A remnant composed of the faithful servants of God is separated and spared from destruction. And so the idea of the remnant runs throughout the Old Testament. Um, we see it with Noah, who survived the flood in which all mankind was destroyed. We see it through, through Lot, who survived the destruction of Sodom, in which all, all the inhabitants of the city were destroyed. And so, uh, so Amos uses this idea of the remnant to offer hope to Israel. Judgment will not be complete. Some of God's people will be spared, not because of their goodness, but because of God's grace, and they will be the nucleus of the future people of God. And again, throughout scripture, we see how God repeatedly uses seemingly small, insignificant people to further his kingdom. So Saul gathered 3,000 troops in order to confront the Philistines, but, but God chose not to use this army to win the victory. Instead, he sent out Jonathan, and his armour bearer in one instant to defeat the Philistines. And he uses a young David with his slingshot in another instance to conquer the Philistines. With those two individuals, a remnant of the larger army, God delivered Israel. And this was Amos's word to the people. Their hope for the future did not reside in their strength as a nation. Instead, their hope for the future rested in a remnant of the people who were protected and empowered by God. And so as a result of God's grace and with and, uh, 
then a remnant of Israel, Israel would be restored. But how would this future hope be realised? Amos goes on to describe the glory of the future by recalling the glory of the past back to the future. Israel, as a nation, thought of David's rule, King David's rule, as their time of greatest prosperity. And so David became the symbol of greater things to come. The picture of the throne of David being re-established and the land being restored would stir hope once more in the hearts of the people of Israel. And the glory of the future is beautifully expressed by a whole series of pictures that we read in Amos chapter 9. Pictures symbolising productivity, prosperity and permanence. What a vivid picture of productivity we see in verse 13. The land would be so productive that the workers in the field would overlap each other. One set of workers would still be gathering in the harvest when the next set of workers began ploughing for the next season. What an inviting picture of prosperity in verse 14. Cities would be rebuilt. The essentials of life would once more be enjoyed. Life would be once more enjoyable. And what a comforting picture of permanence in verse 15. The remnant would be restored to the land, never again to be uprooted. So what does all this mean for us today? What is it it says for us today? Let me suggest that this entire ninth chapter of Amos helps us to live with hope rooted in his promises. He is the God of righteousness who demands that we live righteously and he is our judge. He will not accept second place in our lives or second rate discipleship. And that's, that was the issue with the people of God, is that God was taking second place in, in their lives. He promises his people and us that there will be an accounting, not only the end of our physical lives, but every day of, of that life. We are accountable to him for what we do with the blessings he bestows on us, his judgments and punishments are never an end in themselves. Our God is far more concerned with bringing us back into relationship with him rather than judgment. And he follows judgment with, with the promise of a new beginning. Amos 9 ends in restoration. God says he will repair, restore and rebuild. He goes on to say he will bring his people back and they will do the rebuilding, planting and making. God places us and then purposes us to do the kingdom work. We were not created to sit idly by. And so throughout this book of Amos, he's brought us to a renewed awareness of the cost of being chosen. We have been called to be saints, God's holy people. We've been called to live holy, righteous lives. And we cannot attain righteousness on our own or live righteously on our own. And so as we conclude this book of Amos, let's look at God with a new sense of awe and wonder 
for he has intervened to make us right with himself and give us the power to live holy and righteous lives. Let us see God incarnate in Christ as we move into this Advent season. We celebrate, don't we, the birth of the incarnate Christ. Let's celebrate God incarnate in Christ. His death on the cross establishes the righteousness with God that we can never earn or deserve. Amos brings us to Calvary with humility and repentance. For the righteousness that, that the prophet Amos spoke about is now ours. And this fearless man of Tekoa puts a warrant in our souls to live out that righteousness with greater intentionality, without hypocrisy and pretense. And as we uh, look back on this book of Amos and reflect on all that he has shared, we're almost forced to look in the mirror and repent and to, and to, and to behold God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if God's business is restoring and renewing people into right relationships with him and each other, then how do we best bear witness to him? That's a challenge I place before us all this morning. If God's business is restoring and renewing people into right relationships with him and with each other, how do we best bear witness to him? God calls each of us to be involved in his work of restoration, living out and speaking of his love, redemption and wholeness. He calls us to good works and works done for his kingdom will last for eternity. Christian concern for justice is a step of faith because it is a sign of the new creation that God will one day complete. And this is the challenge of both Amos and Jesus to live out our hope in God's love in a world of injustice. And let's hold firm to this picture of biblical hope. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about that concept of hope. So often, I, I guess, when we think about biblical hope, we think about that time when we will um, when we'll go to heaven and uh, there'll be lots of little angels float, floating around in white and it seems so far removed from the reality of our own lives. But we know that God's work of redemption and renewal takes place very much in the real world, the here and now. So rather than doing away with his creation, the biblical picture of heaven is a fully renewed and restored earth where God dwells with his people. So this week, as we look to move into Advent, may you uh, hold tight to that question, how do we best bear witness to him? How do we be those people that will bring that will help God to bring restoration, renewal and healing into people's lives by living out and speaking his love, redemption and wholeness. 
We're going to um, Heather D um, played this song just in these moments of reflection this morning. And as this song plays, then take the opportunity to ask yourself that question. How do you best bear witness to him? How will you best bear witness to him in these days, in this week, even today? As always, our, our place of prayer is open, if that would be helpful for you this morning.